Welcome to Muskegon History and Beyond with the Lakeshore Museum Center. On today's podcast, we're going to take a look at some of the very first Europeans to set eyes upon our county as we learn about the fur trade in Muskegon. So to begin with, I want to make sure we are all on the same page as to what the fur trade refers to. The fur trade was between Europeans, mainly French, Dutch, English, and their descendants, including Americans, and the native tribes living within the United States. Starting on the East Coast, the trade traveled across the United States over time as settlers and explorers expanded westward. During the trade, Native Americans would give tanned and processed furs to the Europeans, such as muskrat, mink, otter, and ermine, among others, with the most important fur being beaver. Beaver became the default quote-unquote currency of the fur trade with other furs being worth more or less than a beaver's pelt in value. So for example, an ermine pelt was worth about the same as eight beaver pelts, and a muskrat was usually about a tenth or a sixteenth of a beaver pelt in value. In exchange for these furs, the Europeans gave items to the Native Americans such as cloth, steel strikers, knives, pots, guns and all the accessories needed for them, shirts, and beads, among many other items. Services were also exchanged, and Native Americans could receive goods for providing food or making and fixing the birch bark canoes used by the traders. While prices weren't fixed for any of the trade goods, and barter ruled the day, traders played off of each other trying to get the most furs and customers. Think gas station wars that you might see today. Once trading was done, the furs were then shipped back across the Atlantic to Europe, where they were processed into furs for clothing and turned into things such as felt hats, with beaver fur being the prime material for the latter. Now that we all have an idea of how the fur trade worked, let's take a look at who was involved in Muskegon County. The earliest European visitors to West Michigan were French explorers and missionaries such as Father Marquette. They discovered in western Michigan beautiful lakes connected to Lake Michigan and Ottawa and Potawatomi Indians living in the area. These natives and the French established a relationship and an exchange of goods occurred. The earliest trading in Michigan centered at Fort Michilimackinac, that's the fort on the mainland part of Michigan, and natives from around Michigan traveled to the post to exchange fur for European goods. After the French and Indian War, the British took charge of the territory that would become Michigan and built the fort on Mackinac Island that most of us are familiar with today. Over the years, the island became a depot of the trade where traders received their goods and deposited furs. After the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812, the area would come under control of the Americans who continued the fur trade in Michigan until it ceased to be profitable in the 1840s. The names of the traders and where they traded from is sketchy and sometimes contradictory in the sources as most of the traders stayed for a short time in the area and didn't write down their experiences with a few exceptions. But I will do my best to reconstruct what it was like being a fur trader in Muskegon County and who these entrepreneurs were. Now, As I mentioned earlier, the earliest Europeans to visit Michigan and Muskegon were French explorers and missionaries. Now, while there is no clear record on if French fur traders followed in their footsteps after, there wouldn't necessarily have been a record. You see, the early French fur trade had natives bring their furs to cities like Montreal and Quebec and trading there. Later, when forts were built, they became the regional destination. So the French fur traders didn't go out into the unknown to trade frequently. Part of the reason for the system was that the French government wanted to control the trade by making sure only licensed traders were involved. That way, the government got to tax it and receive income from the purchase of a license. This also meant that they could establish rules for the trade, which would hopefully lead to great relations with the Native Americans. While this plan worked, 
the profits of the fur trade were too much of a lure to keep everyone on the straight and narrow, which comes back to why we don't know the earliest traders in the area, because many French decided they would just trade on their own accord illegally by setting off into the woods of Michigan to live with the natives and trade with them. These illegal traders were called cours de bois, which is French for runners of the woods. Since their dealings weren't strictly legal, they didn't exactly leave written records about what they did and when they did it. The earliest traders I could find on record that were in Muskegon County come from after the French period in Michigan when British and American traders started to move in and settle near Native American communities. One of the earliest traders might have been an African American known as Black Peter who was recorded in the log of the British ship HMS Felicity as living in Muskegon and acting as an agent for the British, spying on any Americans passing by, but also maintaining friendly relations with the Native Americans and securing food through the trade of items. While the log doesn't directly mention furs, it seems likely part of this included exchange of them. Another early trader was Joseph Laframboise, who is believed to have settled at the mouth of Duck Lake sometime around 1799. This post that he created would continue into operation under one manager or another until the 1830s. In one of those strange twists of history, it was Joseph's killing that probably made the name Laframboise one you might recognize today. Because, you see, after he was killed by a Native American in 1806, his wife took over the post on Duck Lake and several others in western Michigan, eventually becoming a very wealthy and influential woman, being known as Madame Laframboise. She would eventually retire and sell the business spending the rest of her life on Mackinac Island, where you might have gone past her home that exists even there today. The next trader thought to be in the area was a French-Canadian named Lemerendier, or Lemerendi, who arrived in the early 1800s, and who also brought a son, or had a son while I was here, named Etienne. While I do not know exactly where they had a post, it was believed to be on Muskegon Lake. After this time period, our records do get a little bit better. So in 1812, for example, we know that John Baptiste Recollect came to the area and built a post west of the mouth of Bear Lake which he occupied for a few years. After Recollect, we have the arrival of one of our major sources on fur trade life in Muskegon with the arrival of Gordon Saltstall Hubbard and his small group of voyageurs. Hubbard later wrote an autobiography in which he described his experiences as a fur trader in Muskegon. Hubbard was the leader of an expedition, but he was very new and a young man, so he was told to listen to the advice of an experienced voyager, which he mostly did. They also had two other voyageurs who were with them and were there to assist in the trade and to paddle the canoe. The group arrived in Muskegon on December 10, 1819. They found much of the lake frozen and thus couldn't reach the Ottawa Indians who were inland a good 30 miles. So they decided to repair a fur trade cabin they found on the shoreline and use it as their quarters. Once settled, they decided to set out and find the natives. Hubbard elected to stay behind in the cabin to await the group's return. He had with him his gun, some corn, and some flour. He thought he would be able to hunt for enough food to survive, even though Dufresne, the voyageur leader, had warned him it would be scarce. Hubbard managed to find some small game, though, such as rabbit and squirrel, but that started to run out quickly, and he didn't want to leave his cabin too far behind in search of more game. Then there was a deep snowfall, when about two feet of snow accumulated, and the food became very, very hard for Hubbard to find. Hubbard stayed in the cabin next to the fire for a few days, but his wood started to run out and he had to travel far to get more as the previous owner had cut all the nearby wood. Hubbard would eventually figure out a way to transport the wood easier 
And remember of reading about a Native American winter fishing technique in which a hole was cut in the ice and a lure was used to bring a fish close to the surface which could then be speared. This he would try in the middle of Muskegon Lake. Eventually, he got good at fishing this way and was able to feed himself. He also made his only companion during this period of isolation as a wolf would visit his cabin to eat the fish remains that he threw out every night. After 30 days of solitude, Hubbard feared his companions had left him or had died, and he was torn as to what to do as he had many valuable trade supplies with him that he couldn't leave behind, but also he wouldn't have the ability to take them all himself. Then, one morning, he saw Dufresne and his men coming back loaded with furs, along with some Native Americans whom were helping carry the furs. Furs the men had received included marten, beaver, bear, lynx, fox, and otter, which goes to show you what diversity the area used to have in wildlife. One thing of note that Dufresne mentioned of his long journey away from Hubbard was that he had come across two bands of Native Americans who had already been visited by other traders who had cleaned them out of their furs and told them that no one else would visit them, so they had better trade everything with them. As you can see, there was much rivalry and salesmanship that went into the fur trade business. After talking things over, it was decided the next day that Hubbard, Dufresne, and one of the other voyageurs would go out on another expedition to find a band that they had heard of from the Native Americans that had furs still to trade. So they loaded up with their trade supplies and set out. Dufresne warned Hubbard that he should remain behind again as the snowshoes they would have to use would be very painful for Hubbard and he wouldn't be able to get used to them, but Hubbard couldn't take the loneliness anymore and so he insisted on joining Dufresne and the other voyageur. After a few days of rough journeying, they came across a village and ended up staying and trading for five days, during which time a Native American tried to patch up Hubbard's swollen and painful feet caused by his use of the snowshoes. After the five days, the journey would continue on and they arrived at another camp. At this camp, they heard word of two more Native American tribes who were willing to trade but lived in separate directions. And so one of the voyageurs went in one direction and Hubbard and Dufresne in another. Hubbard and Dufresne would get lost trying to find their way, but eventually find the Muskegon River and forded it as ice chunks floated by them. Now with wet and freezing clothes, the men tried to warm up, but had a hard time as they couldn't get a fire started. In the end, they became very weak, with Dufresne giving up. Hubbard, however, wouldn't quit on him, and going on his own, he managed to find a native family who helped him get Dufresne and moved him to their wigwam. After a 10-day stay, Dufresne was still in very rough shape, but Hubbard and him determined that they should head back to the cabin to meet up with the rest of their group. With help of one of the family members, they made a sled and dragged Dufresne back to the cabin. In spring, the group left the cabin, even though Dufresne had still not recovered. He would eventually die on the return trip to Mackinac, and they buried him somewhere near the White River area. Hubbard would continue on in the fur trade industry for a while longer, before eventually moving to Chicago and starting the meat packing industry there. After Hubbard and his group, the next trader that came to the area was Pierre Constant, who had built a fur trade post somewhere near where Bluffton is today. While I couldn't find what year he arrived, I do know he died in 1828, and that his post continued on with his daughter Louise running it for another five years after that, before turning it over to her husband, a William Lastly, who continued to run it for a while longer. In 1830, a man named Joseph Daly came to Muskegon Lake and built a post near present-day Ryerson Creek. This he would eventually sell to Louis Bedeau in 1834. George Campau was another trader that had a post in Muskegon, 
building near where Herod's Landing is today. He would only stay here for about two years. George was the brother of Louis Campo, who was the founder of Grand Rapids. The last fur trader who got started in the area seems to be Joseph Trottier, or Truckee, as he was named. Trottier was born on Mackinac Island and lived his life with the fur trade all around him. He moved to the Muskegon area in 1835 and ended up with two posts, one on Muskegon Lake and the other on the Muskegon River where Maple Island Road today crosses it. This was the same post that previous podcast topic Martin Ryerson worked at when he first came to the area. Ryerson worked for Trottier for a few years, but by the end of the 1830s, the number of fur-bearing animals became limited to the point that profits were hard to make. As a result, posts shut down all over Michigan, and many fur traders like Ryerson switched to focus on the lumbering industry that was starting to spring up all over Michigan. The fur trade would continue on, however, in the western United States for many more years to come. Thank you for listening, and join us again on October 7th for our next episode. <music>